Good morning. It's Romans 9:30 through 10:4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of God. I think I was about seven, eight years old or so, and um, my brother and I were riding our bicycles in the backyard with some neighbor friends, and uh, we decided, like boys do, that we needed to have a little adventure and a little fun, so we set up a ramp. Now, this ramp was set up on the hill that was going, that led down to uh, the back part of our, of our property, and it was a gravel road, so we set that ramp there at the top uh, of the hill just as it was going down, which makes the jump even better. Now, my brother's four years older than me, and we kept raising the ramp higher and higher and higher until, in my seven-year-old memory, it was as high as you could possibly imagine it being. And my brother decided to try it first. He jumped off the ramp, down the hill, and landed barely. I'll never forget. I can still see it in my eye. He hit the ground. The bike kind of fishtailed a little bit, but he was safe. My turn. My brother warned me, you shouldn't do this, Ben. I'm four years younger than him, and he barely made it. Ben, you should not try this. You shouldn't try it, but I was going to do it, Matt. No way I was going to stop. And I just was thinking about this this morning. I had to have been seven, eight, somewhere in there. That's like Calvin's age. And here I go. I get on this bike. I come around. Ben, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, my brother, now my recollection is I hit that thing and I flew. Oh, a glorious moment of flight. Except for the fact that my body kept going. Uh, after the bike hit the ground, and I went face first, skidding down the gravel driveway. My brother says that I got to the top of the hill and got scared and just stopped and fell over. My story sounds much better. Nevertheless, the point that I'm trying to make is this. We learn lessons from those who go before us. Sometimes we learn those lessons the hard way. By doing exactly, by not learning the lessons of those who go before us. Other times, of course, we are warned. We learn the lesson and we are spared from the disaster that others have experienced. Now, in Romans chapter 9, verse actually chapters 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is dealing with this question about the state of ethnic Israel. 
the, the Jewish race who by and large have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, turned away from him. And the question that kind of pervades all of Romans 9 through 11 is this question. Has God failed to keep his promise, the great promise of the Bible, which is the promise that through Israel, through his chosen people, God would bring the world to salvation. God would overturn the problems of sin and the curse and bring cosmic salvation through his chosen people. But given the fact that by and large, Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah, has God failed to keep his promise. So Paul's dealing with that. And we saw last week that Paul in the, in most of chapter nine is taken up with Paul rehearsing Israel's story, the old Testament in order to show us that God has not failed. God has not been unjust. Things are going exactly according to plan. But at this point, As we come to the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, Paul pauses here to draw some lessons. Some lessons that we should learn from Israel's story. And in order to see what Paul's getting at here, we see first of all that he tells us about where we've come to or the end of the story. At least at the time of Paul's writing, what has come to pass now that Israel's story has reached its climax? He talks first about the end of the story. The second thing he does, and where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning, is he gives us an analysis. Let's look back at the story and where we have come to and do some analysis. And then from that will come the moral of the story or the the, the lessons that still exist for you and me today. All right, so let's get into it. The first thing we find here at the end of chapter 9 is the Apostle Paul is asking us to consider where things stand now at the end of the Old Testament, the end of Israel's long story. And what he does is he points out that the story has taken a strange, though totally predicted, prophesied twist. Verse 30 begins... What shall we say then? In other words, Paul's saying, let's just stop and think for a moment where we have come to at this point in Israel's story. And the answer that follows in verses 30 to 31 is that Israel's story has taken a strange twist. Now, who doesn't like a story with a good plot twist? Let's see what happened. In the immediately preceding verses in particular verses 24 to 29, Paul was highlighting the fact that God had done something with Israel that was like a potter and what a potter does with his clay. Israel, at the end of their story, was exiled to Babylon, cast out of their land. It's a clear act of judgment. There's no doubt about this. Israel understands that being sent away from the promised land into exile in Babylon is an act of judgment, a judgment of God, a judgment that Israel completely deserved. But the promise of God, 
The promise of God, even as God pronounces judgment on his people, the promise of God is that the story won't end there. God will see to it that his promise will be brought to fruition. Israel's exile is going to come to an end. Now, the question that Paul wants us to ponder is this. When did Israel's exile end? It did not happen some 70 years later when the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland under the Persian king Cyrus. Because some 500 years later, when you come to the turn of the, to the first century, even though Israel is living in their land, they were still under the reign, under the dominion of a foreign power. By now, of course, the Roman Empire. Israel's exile was not yet over. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, ah, do you see where we are? Just consider what has just happened. This is not just a story of some Jewish rabbi who died and mysteriously couldn't be found three days later. His body couldn't be found three days later. This is Israel's story. This is the great climax to Israel's story. Something like a paradigm shift has taken place. A strange twist in the story. Paul is saying, this is in fact the end of Israel's exile. This is in fact the inauguration of the long-awaited kingdom of God. Now, what we saw in verses 24 to 29 was Paul's eagerness to say, don't just take my word for it. Like, read your Bible this way. He cites from Hosea and then from Isaiah, and he argues that, surprising as it may be, things have turned out exactly as predicted. God had done what he said he would do in Israel's own prophets. He had spared a remnant within Israel, but widened his mercy to the nations. Those who were not God's people, verses 25 and 26, we saw this last week, those who were not God's people, that is you and me, Gentiles, were now called sons of the living God. This is what God had promised. It came to pass in and around the events surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. That's the twist in the story. Now that Israel's exile has ended, Paul says, just just stop. Consider where we are. The Israel that remained is a remnant of Jews. You're talking about starting out 12, 11 disciples of Jesus. A remnant of Jews, but now as Paul is preaching this gospel... In every nation, as he goes around preaching it to Gentiles, a multitude of the Gentiles, of the nations, are coming in. They're converting. They're believing in Israel's God. That's the strange twist. The nations ended up enjoying the benefits that had been promised to Israel. Verses 30 to 31 state the irony of it all. The Gentiles, he says, who were not pursuing righteousness attained it. But Israel did not succeed 
in reaching what it was that they were pursuing. So just imagine and imagine an archaeologist investing his entire life's work into trying to find some ancient relic only to be beaten to the goal by some schoolboys digging around for sheer fun in the backyard of some remote village. Or think of the story of the prodigal son. The story ends, as you know, with the rebellious son happily feasting at the father's banquet with his older, rule-following brother remains pouting outside. What makes this story and this twist so interesting, Christian? I hope you get this. What makes this story so interesting is that you are living this story. You are, you're sitting here right now, and we just sang these great songs. By the way, weren't those great songs we sang today? Didn't you enjoy singing those songs? If you didn't, what is wrong with you? Sorry, and there's no shame. I'm just saying, like, I'm seeing, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. A bunch of Gentiles are worshiping Israel's Messiah. How did that happen? How did you get here? How did this all come to pass? You and I as Christians, we are enjoying right now, today, the privileges that were promised to Israel. The existence of the church, not just Crosstown Church, you get this, the church all over the planet, Pastor John prayed it, all over the face of the globe, there are churches something like ours, different languages, different music, but doing one thing in common, worshiping Israel's Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it shocking? The existence of the church dominated by Gentiles like you and me all over the world as the heirs of Israel's promises is the shocking twist in the story. Now, this is what Paul is talking about. You've got to follow along here. This is what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 30 that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have nevertheless attained it. Now, the word righteousness has been a critically important word throughout our study of Romans. And you'll notice it reappears regularly here and in the following verses. So let's just consider the context. Let's consider This word has something to do with what Paul has been talking about. Namely, the fact that Gentiles who were not God's people are now God's people. This is the righteousness that Paul is talking about. The word refers to a status that one has. The status as the rightful member of God's people. Righteousness here in Romans, but especially here, means the status of membership in God's covenant family through whom God intends to restore all things. Righteousness does not mean primarily what you and I probably think Instinctively, it means. It does not, first and foremost, primarily refer to moral goodness. 
to reach or attain righteousness means that you are properly, rightfully called a child of God. You are a member of God's covenant people through whom God is bringing reconciliation to the world. The Gentiles, he says, were not trying to get that status. This is the twist. These were pagan people from Israel's perspective, worshipers of all kinds of pagan deities, largely ignorant of Israel's God, and they were not, for the most part, interested in joining in with God's covenant people. That's Israel's God. We got our gods. Those are the Gentiles. But how did they attain it? How did they get in to the covenant if they were not doing anything to try to get there? How did it all happen? And Paul's answer is found at the end of verse 31 when he says, this is a righteousness. This is a status that is by faith, by faith. Now, this word faith cannot mean some, it cannot be some other way of saying, well, after all, the Gentiles were kind of looking for it. They were striving after it by faith. He can't mean that because he has just explicitly said they weren't even trying to do it, right? So this faith, can only be explained by the sovereign call of God back in verse 24, Romans 9, 24, which came about in the reworking, the potter taking his clay, reworking of Israel in the judgment of exile. This is, Paul says, God's way, his surprising way, his shocking way to be sure, but his sovereign plan all along of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. The sovereign call of God that drew Gentiles in was transpiring even as Israel was being judged and exiled out. Exactly as God had planned, exactly as God had promised. The existence of the Christian church with its predominantly Gentile population is not a parenthesis in God's story, but the climax of the story. This is a continuation of what God has promised to do all along. So, how did it happen? My wife always makes fun of me because, you know, those of us who, who like sports a little bit, I, I'm a big fan of the Texas Rangers, and every time the, the game is over, there's hours of analysis. You know what I'm talking about? Endless conversations, rehashing. Look at this play, what happened here? Paul doesn't just tell us what happened he analyzes it. He's mostly interested in this passage because he told the story last week. Last week, Romans 9, he's telling the story. This passage that we're talking about today is mostly interested in analyzing the whole thing. So if you're watching a movie that ends with a surprising twist in the plot, doesn't it make you do some analysis? You go back and you start thinking about that seen earlier in the movie and what that now all means. You know what I'm talking about? Isn't that what you do? Paul is saying, hey, you've been reading your Old Testament. You're familiar with Israel's story. Now that Jesus, now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus is the Messiah, and now that shockingly he was crucified, dead, buried, rose again, now go back and read the story in light of that surprising twist. That's what Paul's doing right here. 
How did Israel miss out? Where did they go wrong? Now, again, I realize that many personalities don't care much about analysis, and that's okay. But I want you to know there's something really important and instructive to see in the analysis of Israel's story, to see the analysis of Israel's story and where Israel went wrong. Because, listen to me, brothers and sisters, where Israel went wrong, and got tripped up is where you and I can go wrong as well. We best learn from Israel's failure. So Paul explains in verse 31, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Notice what Paul doesn't say. This is why you really have to be reading your Bibles. He did not simply say that Israel, unlike the Gentiles, pursued righteousness, but rather that they pursued, literally the Greek says, a law of righteousness, and that what they failed to attain was this law. You see that? Are you following along? Now, why does he put it that way? First of all, if you remember, righteousness refers to a status of being in covenant with God. Israel did not have to pursue righteousness because why? They were the covenant people. They were the ones that God made a covenant with. Exodus chapter 20. That's what the Old Testament is all about. And you and I, as members of God's new covenant, we find ourselves then in a similar place, right? We now, who eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood in the sacrament of communion, we are in covenant with God too. So we had better pay careful attention to what happened to Israel. As members of the covenant, Israel pursued a law. Again, the ESV is a bit interpretive here, translating a law that would lead to righteousness. But the Greek simply says a law of righteousness, reminding us of what we were told back in Romans 7, verse 12. The law, that is the Mosaic law, and all of its commandments, Paul said, are holy and righteous and good. There is nothing wrong with God's law. It's good purpose all along. What it intended to do, what it wanted to do, what the law was meant to do was lead God's people in life to the full enjoyment of being God's covenant people. So Israel's problem, Paul does not rebuke Israel for pursuing a law of righteousness. He doesn't say, that's where they went wrong. He doesn't say that. To see God's law as something to be pursued and even as something of a standard which God requires of his covenant people, Paul is perfectly acceptable with that. So the answer Paul gives for why Israel did not succeed in reaching that law is in verse 32. He says, they failed because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. All right, faith does not mean 
believing instead of doing. That's an easy mistake to make when you contrast it with the word works in this verse. Israel's problem, Paul says, is that they pursued the law not by means of faith, but as though it could be had by works. Now, by works, we should not read, again, doing what the law says. For that would then mean, if you, tr- if you interpret it that way, that would mean that Paul is saying, Israel pursued the law as if they thought that they were actually supposed to do it. Silly them. <laughs> God gave a law and Israel thought, huh, God said we should do something. I guess we should do it. That's not what Paul's doing. Many Christians read their Bibles that way. Many people think that Israel's problem is they shouldn't have taken God so seriously as if to think that whatever God says, they're supposed to do it. No, the word as here in this verse indicates that Israel's problem was not obedience as if they shouldn't have even tried to do the law. Israel's problem, by the way, was not even failed obedience as if God had given a law that he knew would be impossible for them to observe. We'll see more about that next week. Israel's problem, the text says, was they pursued it as if, as though it were by works. It was the way and the manner in which they approached the law. That way and manner Paul calls works rather than faith. Now, again, it's tempting to read our Bibles with the assumption that Israel's problem was essentially with what we sometimes call legalism. It's the idea that, you're familiar with it, by law-keeping, one can earn or at least maintain a status of righteousness, of being in covenant with God. But Israel could not have been unaware of the fact that their status as God's chosen people came as a gift not by merit. It was explicitly stated throughout the Old Testament, not least of which in the preamble to the Mosaic law itself. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, so I have already delivered you. I've already rescued you. I've already brought you into covenant by sheer grace. Therefore, no, the law was not a legalistic standard. But of course, you've read your Bible The Pharisees is a perfect example of the possibility that it is so easy and natural to turn the religion of grace into a religion of works. And a legalistic, self-righteous spirit existed in Israel as much as it still plagues the church today. Insisting that we are right with God on the basis of faith and not on the basis of obedience is something that we just have to say over and over and over again. But the problem here is that we often see the correction for works as a faith that somehow obliterates works or obedience. And that is not what Paul is saying. Israel's failure to pursue God's law by faith in verse 32 is immediately explained with the following words. This is what it means that Israel pursued the law as though by works rather than by faith. Here's what he means. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Make sense? Sermon over. 
when Paul uses that phrase, he is bringing up the words of Israel's own prophets. Again, you got to know your Bible, right? He's saying that the way and manner in which Israel pursued the law is essentially like um, a stone that's right here that's starting to be the beginning of a building and Israel tripped over it. Let's see what Paul means. He cites here in verse 33 from a combination of two verses from the prophet Isaiah. The first is Isaiah 28, 16, which reads like this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So God says in this prophet, in the prophecy of Isaiah, that he has laid a a, a foundation, a precious cornerstone. And it's a word in context in Isaiah 28. It's a word of warning to Israel, who at that time was facing the threat of invasion from the Assyrian Empire and was tempted to trust in Egypt and the Pharaoh to protect them. God's stone was his own promise. His plea, trust my word, instead of going down to Egypt. I will defend my people. I don't need Pharaoh's help. Trust in my word. But Paul now combines this prophetic prophetic verse with another one in Isaiah, Again, about a stone. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 to 15, which goes like this. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Okay. These two texts are similar in that they are dealing, both dealing with the threat of Assyrian invasion. But here notice in Isaiah 8 that God is the stone. Not just his promise, but God himself is the stone. And as such, he becomes a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So in Isaiah's own prophecy, this stone is either a sanctuary a a precious cornerstone, a sanctuary against an onslaught, a coming storm, or this stone is essentially the cause of Israel's destruction. Which is it? And you know the answer, don't you? It's both. Israel would indeed succumb to foreign powers. Again, a clear act of judgment from the Lord. They would be overthrown, first by the Assyrians, then by Babylon, a clear act of judgment from God. But even in the judgment, there's a promise. That's the larger context, by the way, of all of Isaiah's prophecies and all of the prophets of Israel. They're all saying, here comes destruction. Here comes the judgment of God. But in that very moment of judgment, 
will come the salvation you've been looking for. God himself would be a sanctuary for Israel even if the actual sanctuary, the temple, was torn down. Even if the temple be raised, God himself would be the sure foundation of a new temple that could not be toppled. And Israel was summoned to believe him. Now Paul is taking these verses and saying, this is what's happening right now. It's a tragic repeat of Israel's own history some five, six hundred years earlier. In the tragic story of Israel that the Bible tells, the problem of Israel is not Israel being Israel. It's not the problem of Israel practicing the law of God. It's not even the problem of Israel failing to live up to the law's demands, though that is a problem. This is important, by the way, for Christian theology and living because you and I are so quick to put the blame for our problems in the wrong place, just as Israel was keen to do. Amid all the debates about the law of God and its place in Christian theology or how important are our works and our obedience, how binding is God's law, do you have to keep the Sabbath, all these things that we end up fighting about, we're going to make a lot better progress if we follow along with the story and see what Paul identifies as Israel's Achilles heel, because many Christians today have the same weakness. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Peter appeals to the same prophetic text in Isaiah in 1 Peter 2, 6 and 8. In fact, seven times the New Testament picks up this stone imagery, and in every case, the stone is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. Every time. Peter makes plain that this cornerstone is Israel's Messiah. Jesus will be either a sanctuary of salvation or he will be the cause of your final fall and your destruction. What makes the difference is not legalism or lawlessness as if one were better than the other. God will execute his righteous wrath against all ungodliness of men, Romans 1.18, and the law of God provides no sanctuary, not because it's wrong to do what God says, nor yet because the law of God is some impossible standard, but because, as Paul has already said in Romans chapter 7, the law was co-opted by sin. Rather than bringing Israel into life, The law of righteousness brought Israel into the same horrifying place that the lawless Gentiles were in, exiled, outside the covenant. And as Paul goes on to explain in Romans 8, all of this was all happened by divine decree so that God could send his son, the cornerstone, into the very place, that horrifying place where sin had done its worst. So that salvation could come to the world. And so that, as Romans 8, 3 says, the life-giving verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it all comes down to this. Here's the final analysis. It all comes down not to whether or not you do God's law, (laughs) whether or not you're more Gentile or Jew in your personality. Some of you are just more keen toward being a a rule follower, right? Some of you are like that. Some of you, when you hear a a rule, first thing comes in your mind is, nope. (laughs) We got all those kinds in this room. That's not the issue. 
Paul has already shown in Romans that all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, the lawless and the more legalistic, all of us are under sin. What it all comes down to, according to our text today, is faith. But this faith, we now know what it is. It's at the end of verse 33, taken from Isaiah 28, 16. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Faith means believing in him. That is in Christ, in Jesus, the cornerstone of the sanctuary that God laid at the very moment of divine judgment against the hordes of hell. He's the only shelter that will stand against any storm. Those who believe in him will not be put to shame. It is only those who trust in Israel's Messiah who will be vindicated, who will be, who will be shown to be the legitimate members of God's people, who will have the status as a rightful member in God's covenant. So this is then what we would call the moral of the story. This is the lesson for you and me to learn. Not just a lesson for unbelieving Israel, but for believing Gentiles. Israel's story, Paul will say in Romans 15, 4, was written for our instruction. So that you don't make the same mistake that Israel made. So as we turn our Bibles now to the 10th chapter, let's observe just briefly some of the ways we should respond, the moral to the story. And I'm just going to touch on this briefly because we're going to get into chapter 10 next week. But just notice a couple things here at the beginning. First, what should we do? What's the moral? Okay, now what? So here I am. I'm a Christian. I'm singing. I'm worshiping Jesus. What now? What now? Here's what Paul says. First, pray for Israel. He tells the largely Gentile Roman Christians in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, for unbelieving Jews, is that they may be saved. And that should be our prayer too. We should pray for Israel to be saved simply because seeing that you and I have come to share in Israel's great blessings, how can we not now spare a thought and a prayer for their present plight? How did we get here? By the sovereign call of God. You see, praying for Israel will help you and me, Christian, not let the grace of God that you have received be turned into self-righteousness. We who've been brought into a gracious covenant with Israel's God must not now turn our attention away to those who remain on the outside. Pray. Now, of course, those on the outside would include not just uh, unbelieving Israel, but still, there's work to be done. Unbelieving Gentiles, those who've never heard. Paul's attention, of course, is on his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, ethnic Jews who'd rejected Messiah. He describes them in verse 2 as those who have a zeal for God. Now, in 2,000 years since Paul wrote Romans, a lot has changed. For unbelieving Israel, in Paul's day, most of them could still be described as having a zeal for God. It's been said that while exile to Babylon cured Israel of idolatry, the Holocaust and other atrocities 
cured Israel of theism. Many ethnic Jews are atheists. But what's really sad, especially for us, is to see that many Christians appear to be on a similar trajectory. How many professing Christians lose faith when life doesn't turn out the way they assume it should if there really is a God who cares? If you've never been tempted like that, just live a little. It's coming. Brothers and sisters, here's a second lesson we can learn. You and I need Israel's zeal. Oh, we need to take God seriously. Many of us, maybe you haven't thought of it this way, tend toward a practical atheism, content to say Yes, there is a God, but living every day like the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. God is simply not consequential. He takes up very little space in our daily living. Losing your zeal for God or your communion with God and life in the Spirit is no sign of grace, but a sign of trouble. But of course, zeal by itself is nothing. For Paul says, the zeal, the key to the zeal that he wants, Israel doesn't have. They don't have a zeal according to knowledge. They don't have a, they don't, they don't know. They are ignorant, he says here in verse three, of the righteousness of God. Again, they're, they're ignorant of how God has demonstrated his own justice. That evidence is Christ. The one that Paul says in verse 4, a pretty shocking statement that it will take the next sermon to get into. The, The end of the law. The law and the prophets have all been pointing toward this end zone, toward this goal, to Christ. So here's the lesson. Listen to Christ. Follow Christ. Obey Christ. He is the cornerstone of a new creation. He is the rock on which the church is built. He is the good shepherd. And Christ alone will lead you to salvation. Let's pray.